Astania Nikkia Viewer Stylish Monster Stylish Monster Stylish Monster Stylish Yeah One for your body girl Bust down your neck then tell me if you give it to me Okay, from the dot. Fantastic Blackness with Tav and Chante is a bi-monthly podcast about race and speculation in catastrophic times. We talk about things black and fantastic and critically examine how we who were objects of speculation have become speculative subjects. Please listen and subscribe on your chosen platforms and join in on the conversation on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Fantastic Blackness. And the track that you just heard coming in is uh, Give It To Me by Blocka Beats straight out of Nyari Estate in Nairobi, Kenya. Welcome to episode six. Hi, Shante. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Um, we have a special guest today, our friend Zakia Iman Jackson. Hi, Zakia. Hello. Author of Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. Um, you can find Zakia at www.zakiaimanjackson.com. And you can find the book at uh, nyupress.edu. Uh, uh, Zakia Jackson is a professor of literature at University of Southern uh, California, and we're delighted to uh, have her with us today to talk about the book and many other things. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, too. Well, let's just um, jump in. Um, I um, imagine that you have been talking to a lot of people about your book. And um, so it, um, it's, it, re- it, it makes a number of important claims. And uh, one that seems worthy of singling out right from the start within the context of this podcast um, is your argument about anti-Blackness and dehumanization. Um, so rather than say an anti-Black world dehumanizes us with the hidden assumption being that all we need to do is reclaim our humanity. Becoming human suggests that slavery and its afterlives rely upon what you call black plasticity or a constant modulation of black humanity, particularly in relation to sexuality and reproductive capacity. So although there is no modern world without the slave, you argue that the slave provides an ontological grounding for that world and that the speculative aesthetics of black feminist artists and writers have provided an especially rich site for theorizing the consequences of this. So if this is the case, if I've got it at all near correct, what possibilities does your argument suggest for new engagements with science? Um, and maybe not even just science fiction, but like research science itself. Are you interested personally in having that dialogue? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. And I think that um, the book lends itself to that question because of the depth and sustained engagement with both kind of uh, the historical concerns um, and knowledge claims of science, but also contemporary science and um, debates that are currently happening. So I think that's a really good question. And I think that um, it also makes me think about how the book came into be- came into being in the first place. So when I was writing my dissertation, um, you know, I was writing on African diasporic literature and film primarily, and um, science, philosophy, and law. And, you know, once I completed the dissertation, it was time to write the book. It was very clear to me that that was way too much to be accountable for. (laughs) And so, you know, whatever I talked about, um, I'm responsible for it. And at the time, I was a postdoc and was it, I realized that what I was really interested in was notions of species. And so that's where I ended up landing, or that's how I ended up landing on philosophy and science and in, 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 a, 
in a lot of ways, um, their uh, uh, indistinguishability in terms of natural philosophy and, and that becomes really important where art and science are not seen as separate um, or, or, or aesthetics and science are not seen as separate but wrapped up in each other. And while I was there, um, I started having conversations with um, the chair of the biology department um, who was really interested in um, the work that I was doing partially because her mother was very into Octavia Butler. So um, the chair and I started having these series of lunches where we would talk about what I was working on. And she just thought it was like very interesting and uh, cute. Pluripotent stem cells. So she thought it was very interesting that, you know, I was interested in pluripotent stem cells. So, um, you know, out of our conversations, one of the things I realized is that if I was going to write about species and science, I really needed to know it and not just know kind of the the rhetoric of science and some of the problematic histories of science, but actually understand how science actually works in practice. And that actually became really useful for me because one of the things that I ended up doing was taking essentially an undergraduate level, uh, a series of courses that are pretty much equivalent to an undergraduate BA in biology. I did that while I was in, um, on postdoc. And so I think that that really changed how I approached scientific discourse, like what I was saying about science and science became in that process more diverse and more uh, contestatory site and more contradictory site than I think how science often gets represented um, by those of us deeply informed by the uh, linguistic turn. You know, um, science is like the enemy. And so science became a much more contested and variegated um, space. And, you know, the last chapter of the book in the coda, I mean, I probably spent about two and a half years writing those. And part of the reason why it took me so long is because I had, well, one, I read hundreds of studies in epidemiology and public health on racial health inequities, but I also had to learn how to read and speak that language. Um, And so it took me a very long time time and you know I know Shantae like you know like what six years ago you read a a version of it and it was very very different so um it took a while to um really be able to acquire um the language to engage science in the way that I do and you know I am interested in continuing to think with science, not simply as a villain, um, but actually as um, a contested field. And I think that when we look at the current conversations, particularly around epigenetics, which is a subject of my coda, that is a very, very lively conversation that's happening about what should be the relationship between, say, the study of racial health inequities, of genetics, and the state? Um, And what does this emergent conversation suggest about policy? Um, And so I am very interested in continuing that conversation and you know, continue to think with science and medicine. I mean, it's such a beautiful answer. And I, as you were talking, I was also thinking about how important um, in academia, there is a kind of move to, because of the um, uh, economics of uh, uh, who's enrolled in what uh, courses and what fields, there's a move to talk about the 
dollar value of humanities degree over a STEM or a STEAM degree um, or a business degree. But I think what you're saying is also really important that particularly for Black folks, because our um, rendering is so wrapped up in science, um, we also need to have a relationship. Those of us in the humanities also need to have a relationship with science. And also we're living through another plague, right? And so the scientific and medical discourse and clinical discourse that's out there is very interesting, right? When people invoke science, when people invoke um, resistance to science, when people invoke medicines, uh, the Western medis- uh, medical fields, um, you know, racism, when they invoke its, uh, you know, sort of more positive aspects. So I think like having more literacy around uh, scientific discourse, um, you know, normalizing, as they say, reading science um, uh, journals, uh, I think is actually really important for um, us, not just as humanities uh, scholars, but as researchers, you know, first and foremost, that we're researchers. Um, so I, you sort of answered the, or got, really were uh, get into the question I'm interested in, which is the, I'm always interested in people's archives and their methods. Um, because, you know, the archive is alive, uh, I like to think. And so I'm really curious about the the broader genesis and genealogy of your archive. You know, you got D- from Douglas, Octavia Butler, Tony Morrison, Wongechi Mutu, Nalo Hopkinson, Azram Lega. Le- how do you say that? Lege? Lege? Um, uh, Azram Lahai. Lahai, thank you. Audrey Lord. And so for you, besides the aspects of sort of science, what brought them together for you? And how do these extraordinary thinkers help coalesce your own um, profound thinking about racialization, the racialization of sex, uh, gender, and the human. Yeah. You know, um, I guess maybe I I just want to just echo something that you said, Shantae. I think it's really, really important. I really think that um, it's important for those of us who are scholars of queerness, of transness, of racialization to be conversant and literate, um, uh, to, you know, acquire literacy in the sciences. Because, you know, it's like whether or not, um, it's like those discourses hold sway. They have an incredible amount of power. And so I think it's really important for us to be conversant with them and to be able to um, not just have a kind of petrified relationship to the ways that they interpolate us and dominate um, our subjectivities and experiences, but to actually be able to enter into conversations about what is good science, what is bad science. Yeah. Um, And, you know, but, you know, I think what is the challenge of that is one, there's a challenge that you, I think you were um, alluding to, which is the sheer fact of, of a lack of numbers. Um, There are so few of us in STEM fields. Um, there are some of us who are there, but there's so few of us. Um, and at the same time, these, you know, be- these sites become some of the most privileged spaces for defining the meaning of sex, of gender, of what it means to be human. So I guess my argument is it's so much that we need to enter into these fields, but I do think that we need to be literate in these fields and then figure out how um, we might um, participate in the contest over the meaning and significance of sex, gender, and of race. Um, Yeah, how we would participate in the contest over the meaning and significance of these terms. I think it's absolutely crucial for us to participate in these debates. In terms of my um, literary and visual interlocutors in the book, you know, it's like my approach to interdisciplinarity was one, yeah, science law and um, science law and philosophy, that was way too much. Um, But there was also a way that I let my 
interlocutors suggest what knowledge is I needed to acquire my literary and visual interlocutors suggests what knowledge is I need um, to acquire. And it turned out that um, I was primarily attracted to, drawn to literary and visual texts that were, you know, deeply invested in science and in um, philosophy. And so, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in Octavia Butler's archive at the Huntington. And, you know, one of the things that is incredibly striking is how widely and deeply she read in, um, in biology. Um, the, uh, the amount of fields that she was reading in, the consistency and depth of her, um, her research, her research. So, you know, I, I think that there's a way that it's important, um, you know, I know scholars like Amy Bong have argued that Octavia Butler is the philosopher of science, is an STS scholar. Um, I think that that is right. Um, I think that the literature, um, the fiction um, engages in a kind of speculative science. Um, we tend to not think about science as um, a speculative discourse, but so much of, of at least the science that has crossed over into the humanities over the last few years, particularly the physics, so much of that is speculative physics, right? Astrophysics is, so much of that is, you know, speculative thought that isn't so dissimilar to philosophical metaphysics. And so, um, you know, I see her work as engaging in a kind of practice of speculative Science and so um, you know, I really just followed my interlocutors and you know followed in their footsteps um, and you know learned what it seemed that they were calling <laughs> for me to learn and um, you know because the book is on the human, um, you know I do very much. Um, agree with someone like Sylvia Winter that is suggesting that the very subject of the human itself requires new approaches to knowledge than what is, um, you know, the divide between the sciences and the humanities that tends to organize academia. Like this, um, our, this object that we call the human is um, bios and mythos. Um, and, you know, I agree with her. I'm persuaded by her that, you know, the, the object proper that is the human um, does not come into existence um, before or outside of the, um, the um, evolutionary emergence of cultural technology of semiosis. And so there is no human before semiosis. And right. so um, the human is both, you know, biological and semiotic. And so therefore there's no place in the current academy to study those two together. And so, you know, I felt like what my job was, you know, in light of Winter's intervention is to try to cobble together and create a path that um, uh, tracked that um, that inextricability. Thank you. Great. Yeah, this is uh, um, so rich, and in particular, thinking about um, you know both. Uh, you know, Sylvia Winter and Octavia Butler, um, two, um, two thinkers who are read a lot and discussed a lot, you know, in the way you bring and articulate the importance of their combined intervention around a, a kind of speculative human science is really, really important. I wanted to, um, well, I, um, 
I'm also thinking about how uh, just this week we have new pictures from uh, Saturn and Jupiter. Um, and there is, you know, this um, drive towards um, space that um, Butler in particular anticipated and thought through very carefully. And, um, but I actually don't want to ask about Earthseed. <laughs> I want to ask about Bloodchild because you have a chapter about her short story, Bloodchild, uh, chapter three, and um, which is set, it is one of these speculative, I guess you could think of, yeah, it's like a speculative biology of, a, of an alien. Uh, is it set on the moon or is it set on a, there's like humans, but they're not, the, the planet itself is the invented planet, right? Okay. Um, so, but um, f- for th- for those who haven't read the story, it's I taught it to my students in the fall and I taught your chapter with it. Uh, uh, I can't quite remember which freaked them out more, <laughs> but I think especially the like cishet male uh, students were completely freaked out by Bloodchild. Uh, and, you know, uh, no spoilers, I guess, but it sort of concerns a male pregnancy, but also about an interdependence. We could think of it as a, semi, a symbiosis or a parasitic relationship between human survivors in the um, in the cosmos and an insectoid species. And I believe that, you know, Butler came up for this idea over the course of doing her own research into her travel and a particular insect species that does in fact burrow a, a, a terrestrial insect species that, that burrows under the skin, leaves its eggs. And um, uh, this became the genesis for thinking through what you call the insect poetics of this um, of, 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 of this particular story. So what, what my question is that rather than, you know, when we think about race and species, as you've been talking, right? Very often we think about simians, right? Um, domesticated animals or pets, you know, as analogies for black dehumanization. Whereas you look in this chapter and elsewhere to other um, species and ontologies. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that decision. It's maybe a continuation of Shante's question about method and aims, right? Like, what do you think? we get from expanding our, um, yeah, expanding the converse, you know, expanding beyond the sort of most familiar sites of the animal human uh, yeah. divide. But if I, sorry, if I could just also ask, ask, add for you to maybe also address the one insect species that does get invoked with blackness mostly by black people which is the cockroach <laughs> so yeah. yeah Ooh, okay um yeah okay so can i just say that chapter was so hard to write my gosh um you know uh, yeah um you know uh, Mostly, you know, that chapter, that short story had been taken up as kind of anathema and a kind of betrayal, both by um, African-Americanist literary critics and also feminist ones. People were like, wait, we thought you were with us. (laughs) What is happening? And so, um, but, you know, I I think a lot of that has to do with um, the conventions of criticism more so than with the story itself. And so, you know, I think that we tend to read um, uh, literature produced by African-Americans as as having African-American literary predecessors or intertexts. And so the kind of, the um, predecessor of the slave narrative, I think kind of 
can, it opens, it makes that, if that's the prism through which you read this text, you get a very different, um, you get a very different story than the story that, um, you know, I identify. And I think if you read it through um, a certain kind of post-humanist lens that is not attentive to race, then I think a lot of times those critics landed in a kind of happy um, post-human relational space where, you know, ontological distinction completely falls away. Um, And I think that it is really in, at least what I tried to do was take, to occupy the terms of Butler's universe. And what ha- what happened when I did that is that um, both of those different, both of those approaches to the story um, seemed insufficient. Um, so in terms of the insect, um, you know, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. Um, you know, I thought about um, the tillic, um, which is the insectoid species, as being um, a speculative species that recalled um, forms of reproduction that are not sexual reproduction. So things like bacterial budding, rhizomatic replication, spore production, viral infection, symbiosis, bacterial recombination. So um, creatures um, that live under our skin and in fact make up most of our bodies, like most of our body is not composed of what we would call human DNA. Um, And so that the body that, you know, our organismic body is bodies inside of bodies at every scale, right? Um, And so I think that it opened up those kinds of kind of, uh, kind of resetting the starting place for understanding the organismic body, not as bounded, not as sovereign, but um, bodies inside of bodies. Um, And so where, you know, I've I've written about entomology two times now, but uh, there are two places where anti-Blackness and the entomological meet in that chapter. One is in um, the Latin etymology of colère, and that colère is um, the word colony, our colonialism is tied to this word colère, um, uh, which is Latin word, which means to cultivate. And in the history of debates surrounding theories of symbiosis, um, there has been a lot of racial anxiety about whether or not evolutionary association is a form of slavery, right? And there's a lot of anxiety about the idea that um, we are fundamentally um, the well, the ideal that the human is fundamentally a sovereign entity. And so those debates about, um, the origin of life itself, right? The movement from a single cell organism to a multicellular organism. Blackness has been so central. Um, the idea of blackness, the idea of um, uh, racial mixing has been so central to the debates about whether or not this is a theory that um, the science, the kind of official cathedrals of science want to take on because of the threat that it would blacken um, the ontology of the human. Um, And 
So, um, and there is a, in that it would blacken the ontology of the human in that there was a fear that ultimately what was being, um, what was being uh, argued in say someone like Lynn Margulis's work on symbiogenesis is that um, that the human is not autonomous, not sovereign, um, but is at its origin, um, at the origin of life itself, um, an association, right? Um, an association. And so we're talking about the ways that race and anti-Blackness is shaping um the debates about the origin of life itself. We're not even talking about the origin of the human species, but it's being pulled back all the way back to the origin of life itself. And that racialization is shaping debates about, you know, bacterial life, um, you know, um, before humans even enter onto the scene. Um, And so, um, that for me is the, um, I guess, kind of where it started. And then I think from there, I try to think about, you know, this idea of sovereign man is also deeply about anxieties about gender and sex, um, about identity. Um, Anxieties about gender, sex, and sexuality, um, and about the penetration of bodies, um, and um, this idea of the body as this kind of um, hermetically sealed um, entity, um, and that, you know, the immune system, I mean, there's so many layers to this, I'm just (laughs) the immune system is primarily defense. And, you know, I think that the Butler story gives us a way to think about both the immune system as something other than just defense um, and gives a a different understanding of the body um, as not sovereign, as not masterful, but really opens up the question of, you know, at the register of our gut, the thing that disturbs us are these, this idea of these creatures disturbs us affectively, libidinally, the idea of these creatures inside of us, living inside of us at, you know, these, you know, microorganisms are also what keep us alive. And so what is the, you know, what is actually harmful um, and what is merely uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and, you know, what might we gain from a more robust and rigorous understanding of, of the organismic body and how that might um, be instructive for how we think about questions of gender, sex, and sexuality and maternity. Keep left foot in the woods like a messy. Dready long, utadani mini yesu. Bombo clat, wani cheki kama yesu. So I just, if you had any interest in, like, you don't have to get into it, but I'm really interested. You and I have had conversations, Z, about um, um, color and the invocation of the cockroach as a, as a, um, as a, a sexed, like female, right, as an insult. Right. And sometimes that gets used as a colorist insult to all black people, regardless of sex or gender. Right. But I'm interested in this way that black people, you know, it's a pretty serious insult. Right. Um, To call someone a cockroach, partly because of the associations with poverty, even though cockroaches are everywhere because they're (laughs) disgustingly resilient. Um, um, But also because of the nature of their they're so um, antithetical to the way humans move. They're fast. They can fly when they want to. They 
are associated with dirt, but also with survival. So I'm just wondering about that just a little bit in terms of um, the ways that Black people invoke the insect, this particular insect, um, as a kind of racialized and as a like sexed or gendered um, and a colorist um, insult. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, um, also the pejorative of the hood rat too, right? Um, right. You know, I, you know, cockroach is interesting because there's also a complex history of Chicano-ness being tied up with cockroaches too in terms of representations yes, of yes, yes. Chicano folks as cockroaches. Um, you know, I... You know, the thing that comes to mind for me, I mean, I think that you are absolutely right in terms of the interim, the Black intramural and the way that these kinds of terms are used Um I would say almost, I almost want to say there, there's a particular acuity to how they are used to cut between Black women. Um, and so I definitely see that. Um, and so I, you know, I... Mm, um, you know, I don't know if I have much more to say about that off the top of my head. But, you know, there is this really fantastic poem um, by Audre Lorde, actually, where um, she's talking about whiteness and she talks about wanting to be the cockroach on your pillow. Um, and so <laughs> it, it's, you know, I, I, I haven't looked at it really since graduate school. Um, and I thought about, you know, writing about it, but it's like, you know, I want to be the cockroach on your pillow when you sleep at night. Um, and so in that case, it's about Lord kind of embracing this kind of monstrosity of, of Blackness and um, the kind of terror, terrorizing um, semiotics um, and the threat to white domesticity and peace and slumber, um, and that she wants to embrace um, as, and so in that context, the cockroach becomes a, a model of a, a certain kind of upheaval or rebellion. And, you know, I think that that is, um, I think that that's really compelling um, because I, you know, there are, there is much, I think that can be learned from, from insects and insect colonies. And I think that there's, um, you know, it just opens up the semiotic coatings of blackness and vermin and to new semiotic arrangements. And so I think that that's really interesting um, because I don't think that all, you know, I'm not at war with metaphor or, you know, I, or poetics. Um, I think that there can be some things that are really generative and useful about poetics between people and creaturely life. Um, but it's all about like what affects, what are those poetics in service to? What do they enable? What do they shut down? Um, and, you know, I think cockroaches and Black people um, gain a lot in Lord's poetics <laughs> about, you know, about wanting to be the cockroach on, you know, the white domestic pillow. I think you this is, absolutely this is have. You have to write that, uh, yeah. that essay, and uh, you you have me thinking Please. about this. Uh, you know that that poem by John Donne, right? The flea, 
which has that mm-hmm. same kind of, um, but you know, it's also, I know that uh, Shante, you want to get in to talk about uh, Simeon's in a minute, but um, mentioning Lord makes me think of this uh, passage from uh, uses of the erotic as power, which I taught where, you know, she talks about sexuality as under patriarchy, right. Um, as um, uh, women being maintained uh, in a distant inferior position. This is a quote to be psychically milked much the same way ants maintain colonies of aphids to provide a life-giving substance for their masters. And I think that this is always such a shocking comparison for um, I think in particular, my STEM students, right? Because it brings them immediately into this, yeah, like the dreaded comparison, right? And they think that they're safe from <laughs> thinking of hard questions about um, biology in relation to um, uh, race and gender and sexuality, but but they're not, right? And Lord is insisting that they that they not be. Um, over to you, Shante. That's so great you brought that up because I recently taught um, the same essay alongside uh, Kambahi River collective statement. And I think this goes back to what Zakia was so eloquently stating about her own training, your own training Z and um, the biological sciences and the kind of, um, the kind of pre, the kind of ideas people have about what literature is or what aesthetics are or what um, prose is or what poetry is. And then all of a sudden Lord is making these, you know, metaphoric uh, connections that, um, that blow open, you know, what they think about uh, power, history, um, science, the arts, um, um, sex. And so, you know, the, the, the discomfort that so many of my, you know, straight students had around um, thinking about their own, what was their use, what is the use of their erotic, right? And then, you know, just discomfort with talking about the erotic um, and only thinking about the erotic in uh, sexual terms. And so it becomes very private, you know, and very, very small. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, I'm really curious um, as I, you know, as I was rereading your book and, I, and I'm really excited, I'm teaching it in April and I, um, I'm excited to actually uh, use this podcast. I think it'll help my students when they're navigating um, your book, because I think um, a lot of them are humanities, you know, students and they're not, they, you know, like many of us run away from, well, I like science, but I run away from math. But anyway, um, I recently said to my grad students, we have to rethink our knee-jerk reaction of horror and outrage when a black person is compared to a gorilla or a monkey or a chimp. Well, child, the silence, <laughs> the outraged, <laughs> the outraged silence. Um, and I say this in part because um, alongside with this discussion, I've been, you know, I've been teaching um, Oyamuni's uh, of the invention of women, right? Which breaks down as you do how the Western taxonomy and typology and classification around sex gender is not universal, right? And it obscures not only our other, our sensorium, our other modes of sensing, but other modes of being, which is like, not that the, the body, you know, has to be the like orientation of social relations. And um, you use this great term throughout your work. So I want to ask how do blackened people, as you call us, how do we tarry with animalization more, whether it's, you know, insects or simians or canines. So how do we decolonize from this kind of like trauma of like, you know, whether it's people calling um, Serena Williams a, a gorilla and then, you know, what's her name? Um, Claudia, Claudia, uh, Claudia Rankine writes about, about that. And, and I'm like, but a silverback gorilla is like a pretty amazing animal. Like they're beautiful, they're strong, They'll rip your face off. I mean, you know, it's like they, their social relations are kind of incredible. So how do we like get away from, or how do we work with, right? Not get away from, how do we work with, how do we tarry with animalization, the discomfort of it, the histories of it, of being, of, of plasticity, right? Like how do we tarry with being plasticized um, rather than um, trying to return to this position of the human which the human, of course, depends on our plasticization. We can never, we can never be there. It's a moving goalpost. So how do we, what are your thoughts on that? 
Okay, that is a big question. Um, you know, I'm glad you you mentioned Oyeronki, Oyerumi's work. Um, that book, The Invention of Women, is super, super, super important. I wish more people read it. Um, and, you know, I mostly enter into conversation around these questions of sex, gender, through a range of people. But, you know, one of them that main, that sticks out a lot is Sylvia Winter's work on sex, gender. Um, but her work is so in conversation with Oyeronki Oyerumi. Um, and so I'm really glad to um, hear you um, mention that book. That book is really, really important. Um, so um, in terms of the of trauma, you know, for me, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I've been writing a version of this book since, 2008 so before there was even a thing called animal studies and you know I um you know I think I, I, I was gonna say most of the time I, I would say even still now the trauma response to me even saying what it is that I was working <laughs> on yeah was so palpable for all subject positions because it was just like the anxiety and trauma that black people have about um this history and also the kind of animal rights exploitation of this history it was kind of like people kind of froze it was like uh, fight, flight, freeze, people froze. Um, or it was, um, you know, lots of non-Black people acting like they didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> that I'm like, they probably think I just in this position to be like, I don't understand the words you're saying right now. I know nothing about that. So um, that was consistently a challenge, you know, um, I really dreaded talking about the book at all for a really long time because it was so uncomfortable to even talk about the subject of the book. Um, and so, you know, one of the decisions I made, and so my answer to this is going to be very anecdotal in terms of like my own way of dealing with this, is I knew the first chapter had to be on the slave narrative because I think that those scenes of, you know, Black people eating alongside, you know, pigs and that those images, I think, are so powerful in terms of being imagined as a... Um, synecdoche of anti-blackness so I had to deal with them um I had to deal with them and I, I felt like I had to make them dis. I had to disorient our relationship to them before I could say anything and for me that felt ethical in terms of how to do this work like I needed to acknowledge a trauma and then also kind of try to reconsolate or reframe the logics of the trauma. So I had to go, you know, in and massage. Um, it wasn't going to work to disavow the trauma. Um, I felt and I did I, I felt like it would be unethical to not deal with that. Um, and so, you know, I had to estrange us, I think, from this kind of reified understanding of what that relationship was. Um, and so, um, now in terms of um, the question around Simeon's, you know, I mean, Shantae, I think that that's a hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's really um, hard sell. <laughs> I think I think that's a hard sell. But you know, 
I think that what, you know, what I wanted to do, and because I will tell you, people's first reaction to me, if they were going to actually enter into conversation as opposed to, to run away from the, the topic of the book was to, to just immediately burst out the racist fantasy. Right. And they're like, so your book is about, and it's just like, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so um, that racist conflation um, was also one that is positioned at the end of the book. And um, I also try to estrange us from, because, you know, you know, as I say, uh, first of all, there are no orangutans in Africa. Can we start with that? I mean, Mic drop. <laughs> Mic drop. There are actually no orangutans in Africa. And that particular, you know, fantasy um, comes out of a very complicated history with Southeast Asia. And um, I think comes out of a failure of translation that then gets attached to African female sexuality in the newly globalized terms of multiple colonial discourses. So they're all talking to each other, the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, in this kind of you know moment of the so-called age of discovery. And so it jumps from a conversation about Southeast Asian women's, Malay women's sexuality in particular to then becoming connected to and becoming basically the urtex of Black female sexuality. And so I think making that estrangement and, you know, uh, that was one way I dealt with it. And I also didn't linger with it because I also feel like there's a way that um, I didn't want to You know, I, I wanted to carefully manage the pornographic. Right. I wanted to carefully manage it. Um, and, um, but there's not an, I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't know if I arrived at an answer. I arrived at some tactics. No, that's um, great. It's really great. Because maybe a book, maybe a book is not the place for these conversations, you know? You know, I don't know. I, I arrived at a tactic, but I think that in terms of what you're saying about, you know, I not having a trauma response to the conflation of, of Black people and a range of creaturely life, I think it's not enough to shift one term. I think you have to shift an entire semiotic, libidinal, ontological arrangement in order for that analogy to not be reproductive of the current order. And so I don't know. I mean, I think like if we think about the case of the Audre Lorde poem, which I'm immediately going to go back and look at, you know, there's so many things are being shifted at once in order for that metaphor to open up other possibilities, I think many things would need to shift in order for that, that, that particular, um, that particular collapse of differentiation um, to actually be doing something different. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's thinking about the weight of historic condensation, right? On particular and, and highly affected points. Um, I think we should take another mini pause and, and um, 
then I want to ask another uh, kind of follow-up question about um, the long durée of anti-Blackness. So we're back with uh, Zakia Amon-Jackson, who's graciously agreed to come and talk with us about uh, her new book, Becoming Human, Matter and Meaning in an Anti-Black World. And we just were talking about um, what it might take to uh, reconfigure the consequence of the um, uh, animalization of Black life, right, in... uh, uh, in terms of the kinds of uh, thinking that uh, you've done, Z, around um, around species in particular. Um, and um, I was going to ask a kind of lighthearted question about, like, becoming mutant. Uh, but um, because I think that there's a certain kind of audience for our podcast that, um, you know, highly identifies with maybe, you know, becoming mutant and does not want to be human at all or is ready to give up on being human. Um, I know I was when I was a teen. Um, Highly, highly disappointed to have turned out to be totally human and not, you know, not a mutant. Um, But but I think in many ways, this is a route, a way into asking you to talk more about the interventions you see in the book and your work in general as uh, making into... um, trans, queer, uh, non-binary blackness, right? In particular, in relation to this like long durée of anti-blackness that you have been giving us a, you know, uh, masterclass in today. Um, you know, one way, again, that I think about this is that your, your work holds the promise of making trans, queer, non-binary blackness, um, the conversation around those categories, less about a present search for an adequate nomenclature, right? Under white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, as if like a single set of terms or a single term would like undo that, right? Um, And more about this like deep history, right? Of black folk shape-shifting our ways out of the straight jackets of normativity. And maybe this is also an invitation for you to talk about what some of the visual artists in particular are doing in the book. Um, But just what does this shape-shifting do and what are the poetics and the ethics of making such an escape from um, uh, the normative, normative gender and sexuality, I guess I would say. Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think that, you know, certainly the current order that we are in, in terms of sex, gender, and sexuality, there's nothing ethical about it. And, um, and so, you know, I don't even know if operating inside of it, um, if there's even, you know, any kind of real ethical um, possibilities, (laughs) there might just be what we may be, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Sh- I, I don't think that there's really any ethical, ultimately, any ethical positions that we can occupy inside of it. And so, you know, the idea, I guess one of the things I would say is that the idea of what's normal is in the way of sex, gender, and sexuality is predicated on the foreclosure of the reality of the normality of exuberance. And so one of the things that I was trying to say, at least, I guess, in that chapter and maybe throughout is that exuberance proliferation is repressed in order to produce a punishing norm, right? So what is actually, you know, normal is, um, is, is um, dispersion and um, exuberance. Um, And, you know, that becomes something that is repressed. Um, And so, you know, I think that um, the normativities 
of sex and gender. So along these lines, the normativities of sex and gender are always defined racially. And so um, that was one of the arguments I was, you know, trying to make in the book. And, you know, that the normativities of sex and gender are always defined racially. And I would argue administered by racial logics and orders. So for me, relationality and differentiation become really important for thinking about how that, how racial logics and orders administer um, and distribute um, uh, taxonomy, typology, imaginations. Um, And so that when we're thinking about any subjectivity subjectivity or identity category, we we always have to be thinking about um, the ways that race is a determinant of the conversation and that whatever category we're talking about, pick a category, that category is always um, produced um, recognizable, legible, um, in, in a relational and differentiated field, right? Um, and so, you know, um, those were s- some of the arguments um, I was trying to make and, you know, am continuing to think about through um kind of uh, continuing to think about and argue that Black woman is a metaphysical category um, and trying to investigate historically and contemporarily um, how the metaphysics of that category function. And so in the process, you know, I'm not treating Black feminism as an artifact. Um, I work in contradistinction to approaches that position Black feminism as a relic of the past. Um, You know, I want to ask the question of how do we cease to want recognition from regimes that that obliterate us? How do we begin to desire these regimes obliteration? Um, their operations of foreclosure are debilitating and pernicious. Um, and I, you know, my interest is in the dissolution of the order and, and not simply in a diagnosis of its semiotics. You know, what I'm after is total upheaval so that there can be an authentic openness, which I think is really the only hope that we have that ethics can even be possible in relationship to what we call now sex, gender, and sexuality. Wow. Um, Beautiful. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. I think that actually might also be a good place to wrap up. What do you think? I mean, we've been... Yes. Yes. Zakia, you've given us, me, and our listeners so much to think about. This conversation has been so rich uh, and incredible. And I just really want to thank you for your time um, and your book. You know, I, I recently was on a panel about Black writing and this writer, Valerie Brown, was talking about how, you know, books are for the future and, you know, that therefore, um, therefore the future's possibility for discovery and, and just really like this idea of, of course, they're for the present, but to, to think about how our ideas um, really can help continue to shape and explode and explore um, um, systems of possibility rather than just, um, when we know like what we have is, has always been falling apart. Um, so, you know, you taking the long time to write this incredibly hard work so well and so thoroughly and so deeply is a real, is a real gift to all of us. And thank you, Tavia, for you know being the uh, uh, series editor, putting it on the on the series. It's really a tremendous. I do have a little small question, just about 
What is it? What how's your life changed as you know your book came out almost a year ago? Is that right? Uh eight to nine months ago. Okay. <laughs> and, I don't know. What is time? I don't know. I yeah, yeah. How has my life changed? Um I mean, you know, I know we're in a I know we're in a whole, you know, plutonium, but <laughs> you know, I do, have yeah. no idea. I mean, you know, it's like you know, I <sighs> As I sit here in my pajamas, you know, like most days I'm in my pajamas. I can't tell you how my relationship really to the world or has changed, you know, or like, I don't even know how I'm low. I, I, my location is so, you know, unclear right now. Um, you know, I, you know, seeing the world from my pajamas and a zoom screen every day. I, I have no idea what's going on. I, I, I mean, I, mean I, I don't even know either. Okay, <laughs> well, That was beautiful. I think that the book is being read and yes. uh, talked about, and it is, it's circulating uh, in this like wonderful way, which, um, you know, can never really be predicted. Right. So kudos that, you know, you wrote a book that is, you know, being read and learn and people are engaging with, uh, uh, and, and will be for, uh, yeah, definitely for, for years to come as Shante was pointing out. Um, I think that you have our thank yous and then I'm going to give us our great sending out so, track. Okay. So we want to thank our producer, Dr. Alex Van Gills, um, Daisha Stark for uh, the social media support and our guest, course, Dr. Zakia Iman Jackson. Thank you so much. Please follow us on Instagram at Fantastic Blackness and listen to us um, anywhere where you can find podcasts. Fire podcasts. And we are going to go out with a, with Madison Moore's opulent new track in between subjects. See you next time. Thank you, Tavia. Thank you, Shante. Hi, this is Tavia, encouraging you to follow us on social media and to let you know that you can find show notes for this and future episodes of Fantastic Blackness on our Substack. stack.